0: Who was Congressman John Lewis? What was his role in the March on Washington? And how did Representative Lewis lead the charge in Black Americans' petition for voting rights? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. marks the first day of Black History Month. And in commemoration of some of the most inspiring players in that history, we're taking a look at the life and the legacy of the late Congressman John Lewis. Representative Lewis, along with Dr. Martin Luther King and countless others, led the charge in the March on Washington and the Selma Montgomery March to petition for the civil and voting rights of black Americans. Representative Lewis dedicated his life to the pursuit of causing what he called good trouble. But that didn't come without opposition. So what role did Representative Lewis play in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee? What was his relationship like with Dr. Martin Luther King? And how is Representative Lewis's legacy living on? We have so many questions to answer. So here to talk me through all of this is the creator and co-author of the graphic memoir series, March, Andrew Iden. Andrew wrote the series with John R. Lewis, and he worked with him for a very long time. He's a number one New York Times bestselling author. And guess what? He's here with me today. Andrew, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun. Um, I'm so excited to talk about Congressman Lewis because I remember when he passed in 2020, all of the incredible tributes. We all celebrated him with such respect and admiration because of the phenomenal change that he brought to our country. So um, let's get into all of his all of his accolades and honors and all of that. But first, let's just establish who was John R. Lewis.
1: John Robert Lewis was a good man and he grew up in pike county alabama his father was a sharecropper until he bought 300 acres and that's where john lewis grew up and he would hide under the porch of that old shotgun house because he didn't like working in the fields and so when the school bus was coming he would hide and as it came by he would bolt out hop on the bus and off he would go to school Cause his parents, they needed him to work in the fields, but he always wanted to, he was always curious. He always wanted to educate himself, to read, to learn. And I think that in many ways typified who he became as an adult, Mm. you know, he didn't necessarily always follow what the powers that be or his parents or, or the people above him thought he should do, but he was always curious and he was always trying to learn and he would do it his own way.
0: That's really interesting that you say that, because I feel like a lot of people who uh, end up becoming the all-time greats and leave a legacy and a mark on our society and our, uh, our country, they're usually people who were curious, and they kind of push the envelope a little bit. I do want to get into, uh, your story kind of reminds me of, you know, he always talked about getting in good trouble. I do want to get into that in a moment, but first, I just want to establish, you worked with John Lewis, correct?
1: I worked for John Lewis for more than 13 years. Wow. Uh, I was in his congressional office. I uh, served as a press secretary and then communications director on his reelection campaigns. Um, we wrote four books together. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I ran all of his social media the whole time. I was also a policy advisor. Um, we even worked on an episode of Arthur together.
0: No way. How was that?
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny because for all the things that John Lewis is good at, I'll never forget going into that recording studio of him trying to do his voice acting, <laughs> and, and he was he was a little lost, um, but it was fantastic. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's Arthur. Like, how can you not love that?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's incredible. It's it's definitely a different skill, but I'm sure he was poised, and he um, he probably did an amazing job. Yeah, well, he what, did great. What was he like as a person?
1: You know i think especially in the latter half uh of the decade plus that i worked for him um people sort of saw him as this this serious icon um very stern and he could be but the john lewis that those of us who knew him best got to see was just so funny like he liked to, to play jokes on people he liked to laugh um He's a little bit of a gossip, <laughs> but he, uh, and he loved art. I think people lose that sight of that. I mean, he really, really loved art. Um, that was something that we really shared together. We would go to these auction houses when we had a little time off in Washington. And, um, he, he would, uh, he would look at and bid on and buy, um, all these like he, he never had much money, so he would buy these small pieces. Um, and I remember him saying to me on more than one occasion, you know, if I had a million dollars, I would go to that swan auction. I would buy, you know, this Ramar Bearden or this Jacob Lawrence or something like that. Um, and so he was just, he was, he was a much more well-rounded person than I think people understood.
0: Hmm. Yeah, th- exactly. I mean, I think... When, when I heard all the tributes, it's people talked about what a good guy he was and, you know, how inspirational and everything he was. And of course we think of him um, when we think of the civil rights movement and, um, some things that happened in history and his mark that he's left. Um, but I love to hear those stories because he was a human being and, and, you know, he had other interests also. Um, so that's, that's really neat to hear. What do you think, Andrew? Um, how do you think he became such a legend during one of the most important movements our country has ever seen? I mean, how did he get to that point?
1: Well, I think you've got to understand that there is a couple eras of John Lewis and it ebbed and flowed. Um, you know, it was less than a year, or I guess it was about a year, 14 months after Bloody Sunday that he was ousted as chairman uh, from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Mm. But I think the way he rose in the civil rights movement came in large part because he was so focused on direct action. He was not afraid to be beaten. He was not afraid to put his body on the line. And so whether it was the uh, Nashville sit-in movement, he was one of the first participants um, in those old workshops at Kelly Miller Smith's church that Reverend Jim Lawson led along with Diane Nash and Bernard Lafayette and C.T. Vivian. And they were in that first wave of sit-in participants in 1960. Um, in fact, they actually had test sit-ins in 1959 that predated the, the Greensboro uh, sit-ins. And then the Freedom Rides, right? I mean, there's this, this seminal moment when the Freedom Rides are about to be called off. You know, the federal government is saying no more. The Freedom Riders had been firebombed in, Alliston, uh, in Anniston, Alabama, and it was John Lewis and Diane Nash and, and what they called the Nashville group um, that said, no, the rides must go on. And even though he was a, a, an original participant, he, he'd been a part of it. He was one of the original riders. Um, he wasn't afraid to go back into the lion's den. He wasn't afraid to get beaten again. Um, and, and ultimately, he was. And then he was arrested. And then he, then he was actually sent to Parchman Penitentiary, uh, one of the most notor- notorious prisons in America. And then you see that time and time again. I think that in large part, his devotion, his persistence, his, his I mean, he was arrested more than 40 times during the movement. Um, that's what elevated him to the chairmanship of SNCC. After Chuck McDew resigned, they were looking uh, for somebody who, who really had that devotion and that commitment. Um, and I think that's also what caught Dr. King's eye, right? I mean, before John Lewis ever even went to Nashville, he writes a letter to Dr. King and he says, I want to integrate Troy State University. And Dr. King warns him that his family him, will face danger, threats, violence uh, from white supremacists. And he says, well, I want to try it anyway. So he goes back and he talks to his parents and his parents say, no, they're the ones who were who didn't want him to do that. They thought it was really? too dangerous. Um, and then, you know, there's this whole other era of John Lewis that I think people forget, right? It's about how he would always reinvent and rebuild himself. He gets ousted as chairman of SNCC in 1966 by Stokely Carmichael. And so, and and then he ultimately leaves SNCC altogether uh, because of what he saw as uh, certain factions within SNCC actually undermining and sabotaging Dr. King. He said that was too much for him. And so then he goes and he actually takes a job with the Field Foundation um, helping to uh, administer programs in the South, and it's this strange role reversal where Dr. King actually shows up asking for John Lewis's help to get mm-hmm. a grant from the Field Foundation. Um, and and it's from there that he joins the Robert Kennedy for President campaign in 1968. Right, so he reinvents himself as as a, a participant in politics. He goes from activist a public servant. And you know, John Lewis was the one organizing the event in Indianapolis um, on April 4th, 1968, the day Dr. King was shot and killed. Um, and it's when Robert Kennedy gives this unbelievable speech that the congressman said he believed was one of the greatest speeches, if not the greatest speech in modern American politics, that calms the, the crowd, that stops um, anyone from acting out in Indianapolis that night, even when you yeah. saw... Uh, uprisings in other cities, and then John Lewis was in L.A. in in June of 1968, campaigning with Cesar Chavez, and he was there that evening in the hotel, in the Ambassador Hotel in L.A. with Robert Kennedy's family, the night he was shot, mm-hmm. and that becomes a springboard for him to reinvent himself, not just as someone who participates. As a staffer or as an aide, but as someone who, who then runs for office. So by 1977, he runs for Congress for the first time. As a matter of fact, you know, when you think about the 5th Congressional District seat in Georgia, you got to understand it was John Lewis who envisioned that as the seat of black political power in the South. He wrote a letter uh, shortly before, uh, around 1970, to Julian Bond, who had by then was a, a, a state representative urging him to run for the fifth district seat. And Julian says no. And it's actually Andy Young who gets a copy of that letter. And in in it, he just lays out this whole plan for how Atlanta could become the capital of black political power in the South. And Andy takes that letter and decides to go run. And he wins. And he becomes a member of Congress. And so then John Lewis starts running. He gets defeated in 1977 by Weiss Fowler. And so he runs for city council. He gets elected state, uh, citywide. And then there's that infamous race in 1986 versus his old friend, Julian Bond. Yeah. But, you know, that's not even like the, the last reinvention. I mean, I think about when I first came on his staff in 2007, you know, the congressman was getting beat up pretty bad politically for not supporting President Obama, or then Senator Obama. And I remember he said to me, I'm worth more dead than alive, son. <laughs> Wow. And, and he reinvents himself again. Right. Like he takes that. I remember we, we had a whole plan, right? We, we were going to use, we use social media and that's where a lot of this good trouble stuff comes from. Yeah. We use social media along with the graphic novels to reinvent and explain what it was because the big question then was people asking, what have you done for me lately? What did you really do? They knew about Selma, but they didn't know the rest because So much of this had been excluded from classrooms and curriculums, and so he reinvents himself. All of a sudden, now he's a comic book and graphic novel author. He's a member of Congress. All of a sudden, he's, you know, he's in Arthur. (laughs) He's in Arthur. Arthur. (laughs) Exactly. It's using (laughs) these tools that other people might not see as an opportunity, Mm
0: -hmm. right? Yeah. Real, real quickly, Andrew. Um, can you just explain what he meant by "good trouble"?
1: You know, I think good trouble is something that is, has become something that means something in the eye of the beholder, right? Like people have applied it to a lot of different things. But fundamentally, I think it comes down to something else the Congressman would say, which is that you've got to find a way to get in the way, right? Mm -hmm. And good trouble is an example of someone who has found a way to get in the way. And you may be making people uncomfortable You may be making people question things that they haven't wanted to question. But at the end, it makes us all healthier and stronger, and it makes the nation better.
0: Right. You find a way to get on that bus, even if it means hiding... Under the porch and, and hiding from your parents You wait for that bus to come and you get on um, It's, you know, he didn't just say it He actually lived those words also Which is which is incredible and, and also Cements his legacy um, You know, th- that's why we're Talking about him right now Alright, we've got to step aside for a quick recess But we'll be back right after this Another day is here and you're ready for it What to wear? Check Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America
1: can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Just to backtrack just a tiny bit, um, you mentioned early on the student nonviolent coordinating committee. Um, just can you expand on that what, for people who don't know what that is?
1: The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee uh, was founded in 1960 in response to the sit-in movement. Um, It was a conference that took place uh, in North Carolina. Um, You had people like Ella Baker who organized it along with Jim Lawson and others. Um, And the idea was that they would create an organization that could coordinate all these different student-led groups throughout the South who were participating in the sit-in movement. And from there, it grew into perhaps the most important and and most influential student-led organization in the history of this country.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, when you look back and you think about the actions that he took, we, we talk about this with, you know, the big six, um, you know, the, the actions that people took during that time where, you know, you mentioned it before, they could be putting their family in danger. They uh, they are definitely putting themselves in danger, but they, they found it worth it. And without them, we wouldn't be where we are today. And we wouldn't have seen all that progress that um, has been made since then. So that's that's so important in his story. Um, and, and, you know, you do you do think about Martin Luther King Jr. And I love the story that you had about them. What what was their relationship like?
1: I just would say that Dr. King was like a big brother to him. Um, you know, I, I, Dr. King in so many ways was there for him in moments that advanced uh, his ability to participate in the movement in ways that I don't think people understand. Right. Like it's after the Freedom Rides. John Lewis is about to graduate from American Baptist Theological Seminary, um, where he'd actually missed his final exams because he was in jail um, at Parchman Penitentiary, in fact. Um, So Dr. King gives him a scholarship from SCLC, Mm. and that's how he's able to go to Fisk University and and get another degree and stay in school. Um, You know, Dr. King was. John Lewis would say, Dr. King was my leader. Um, And I think they were they were so close in so many ways. Um, But also, I think. He he suffered a lot of criticism for being so devoted to Dr. King. Why is that? Um, Because there were people who thought Dr. King wasn't radical enough people in the movement. Um, uh, You know, there is this. uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on here, so bleep me out if if you have to. You
0: can say whatever you want. (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay. uh, but there was a lot of people in the later stage of SNCC, particularly after Selma, after Watts, uh, who felt like they were urging him to tell Dr. King to kiss their ass. That was what they would say. Mm. Um, and John Lewis would say, you know, I'm never going to tell Dr. King to kiss my ass.
0: <laughs> um,
1: and, it's probably a smart and, move. <laughs> well, and I think it's also an example of, you know, the, the, the struggle within the movement, how far can you go at any point, right? Like, what is too radical? Um, Dr. King was very aware of his position in the movement and how it represented um, the, the the broader perception of what the movement stood for. And so at times, he was pushing for the most radical reforms, the the, the ones that really challenged the white power structure. And at other moments, he was trying to keep his organization together because it was dependent on outside funding. It was depending on funding primarily from well-meaning white liberals who didn't always see the value in what he was trying to do. If you look at a letter from a Birmingham jail, it was addressed at well-meaning white liberals. Mm. And so he was constantly being tugged from both sides. And we lose sight of that struggle. Yeah. Um, we lose sight of the fact that he was trying to balance and lead a um, coalition that was far greater than the individual organization that he himself led.
0: Right now. I mean, it's, I'm curious because there that kind, that discussion is kind of carried on in today's world as well I mean some people get in trouble for not being too radical and other people are too radical and it's just it's it's a similar conversation to be had but what you have to respect so much about dr. King is that he did things so peacefully and he he um, spoke to the crowds and people really listened um, he didn't have to scream for people to listen and and something that comes to mind too um, during that time is the march on Washington you know you have two Two hundred fifty thousand people or so gathered together um, to march for for their rights and um, what was representative Lewis's role in that
1: well first you know dr. King did many things that I think today people would call screaming and hollering or whatever they want to denigrate it with right that was perceived as being so radical to get in the way I think of the the Birmingham campaign um, in, in in which he, he shut down certain parts of the city leading marches through it. And it was it was, you know, this is why they brought out the fire hoses, because they it was the only response that they saw as uh, proportional mm-hmm. to the disruption that he was causing.
0: Right. Um, I guess what I the, meant was nonviolent when I say, you know, he wouldn't he was he was nonviolent.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, absolutely. Dr. King was a, 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 an absolute devotee of. Uh, really the philosophy that was pioneered by by jim lawson in many ways because uh, remember it was jim lawson who invited dr king uh to memphis in 1968 as part of the poor people's campaign um and was john lewis's mentor he's a key figure that's largely misunderstood um, or at least not as well known as he should be um, but to your point about the march on washington you know there you mentioned the big six um, and uh, just just to be clear, that's the NAACP, uh, which was Roy, uh, Roy Wilkins, uh, or excuse me, the, you had the six groups, the NAACP, the Urban League, um, A. Philip Randolph, who was leading sort of a coalition of union leaders, but largely at that point, it was the AFL, um, and then you had SCLC, and you had SNCC, um, and you had CORE, which was Jim's, Jim Farmer's uh, organization, um, and they met to organize the March on Washington in, um, at the Roosevelt Hotel uh, in New York City. Um, and there was a big fight over whether or not uh, Bayard Rustin was going to be uh, allowed to organize the march. Bayard was the preeminent organizer um, in black politics at that time. Um, but he was also gay. And the more conservative elements of the movement felt that he should not be the face of it. And so they elected um, A. Philip Randolph to be chair. Um, But A. Philip Randolph's first move was to appoint uh, Bayard as his deputy. And it was John Lewis and Dr. King um, siding with A. Philip Randolph that supported that move. Um, and so that was probably his earliest uh, participation in organizing the march. Mm. Um, and, and then from there, you know, the congressman attended the, I believe it was July 2nd, 1963 meeting at the White House with um, President Kennedy. Um, and it was there that, you know, President Kennedy said, you know, if you bring all of these people to Washington, won't there be violence and chaos and disorder? And A. Philip Randolph said in his deep baritone voice, uh, this will be a peaceful, orderly, nonviolent march. And, you know, it's funny, because if you actually go look at some of the photographs uh, from that meeting, you can tell how John Lewis was not trying to be at the forefront. He's kind of sort of in the back, in shadows. You know, you've got Dr. King and A. Philip Randolph out front with President Kennedy. Um, And there's John Lewis kind of, because he was a little bit shorter and he's kind of in the back. Um, But when it came to his speech, what he would actually say at the March on Washington, John Lewis wanted to essentially say, you tell us to be patient. You tell us to wait. We cannot be patient. We cannot, we, we cannot wait. We cannot be patient. We want our freedom and we want it now. And that was incredibly controversial, right? Because patience is a Catholic virtue. So the archbishop was uh, threatening not to give the uh, invocation. Um, and it was Bayard Rustin who had to um, moderate uh, sort of a truce um, and, and have them rewrite uh, John Lewis's speech. I think one of the people who's, who's still alive today, who was instrumental in that speech is Cortland Cox, um, and he still lives in D.C., and so there they were uh, uh, in this tent behind the uh, Lincoln Memorial, rewriting the speech almost right up until it was time for him to go on. And, you know, the, the uh, John Lewis was one of the last speakers. I think he spoke sixth and Dr. King spoke 10th.
0: Hmm.
1: And he gave perhaps uh, after Dr. King's speech, the most meaningful speech that anyone could give that day.
0: What was the content of that speech?
1: Well, he called out the injustice that was happening in Albany, uh, activists who were being put on death row um, for protesting. Um, He called out a number of, uh, how do you say this nicely now? Faults in the civil rights legislation that was being proposed by the administration. He felt like it did not go far enough. Mm -hmm. Um, and he spoke to the fierce urgency of a meet of action at that time. you know, I think one of the lines that got cut but spoke to the uh sentiment um was he 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 was going to say, We will march to the south like Sherman did, but nonviolently to bring freedom and peace um it was It was brilliant rhetoric. I I think everybody should go back and and read the whole speech. Um, The part that always struck me. They're talking about slow down and stop. We will not stop. All of the forces of Eastland, Barnett, Wallace and Thurman will not stop this revolution. If we do not get meaningful legislation out of this Congress, the time will come and we will not confine our marching to washington we will march through the south through the streets of jackson through the streets of danville through the streets of cambridge through the streets of birmingham but we will march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have shown here today by the force of our demands our determination and our numbers we shall splinter the segregated south into a thousand pieces and put them together in the image of god and democracy we must say, wake up, America, wake up, hmm. for we cannot stop and we will not and cannot be patient.
0: Wow. And, and it, it worked. I mean, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. I mean, those were in response to the demands of the march. So, well, not exactly.
1: But, no, not yeah. exactly. The Civil Rights uh, Bill of 1964 did not contain... Um, many of the the strong voting rights provisions that we think of. And LBJ, after Dr. King went back to him and said, we need voting rights legislation, LBJ said, well, we just passed the Voting Rights Act. Uh, I, don't, I, can't, I can't push no, another piece of legislation, or we just passed the Civil Rights Act. I can't push another piece of legislation like that. And he said, in effect, if you want voting rights legislation, you have to make me do it. And that's in large part where the Selma campaign came from. And also the challenge at the Democratic Convention in 1964. You know, the young people from SNCC uh, aligned uh, sort of as an outcropping of um, the Mississippi Freedom Summer of 1964, which was all about voting rights. We lose that context. Um, They organized the challenge to the Mississippi delegates uh, on the basis of the fact that the Mississippi delegation was all white and that they had disenfranchised black voters in Mississippi and throughout the South. And it was a test case and it was an example. And LBJ was trying to hold the South together. He was worried that he wouldn't win reelection if, um, if, if the freedom delegation was seated and it created a rift. I mean, there was, there was a, a lot of um, pain and anguish over what happened at that convention. We talk about it quite a bit in, in March uh, book three. And what came from that um, was that the stage was set for the confrontation in Selma. Uh, Bernard Lafayette had been the SNCC volunteer, the SNCC staffer, uh, who had originally gone to Dallas County to organize. Um, and then in uh, January, and this was, this was in 64, Bernard had gone down there with his wife. But then in January of 65, Dr. King and SCLC go um, to Selma and they meet with Amelia Boynton and others, and they contemplate a voting rights campaign that um, is a series of protests and challenges at the Dallas County Courthouse. That's Jim Clark. There's famous footage of C.T. Vivian, who by that time was working for SCLC, on the courthouse steps, um, trying to get in to register and vote. And the sheriff would refuse to let them in, or they would keep the line outside all day. And there are all these tactics that, frankly, are uh, all too familiar for folks waiting in long voting lines today. And it was in that confrontation at the Dallas County Courthouse that you saw participants like Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was then murdered, um, helping to organize and participate. And then after Jimmy Lee Jackson was murdered, that's where the Selma March comes from. That's where what we think of as Bloody Sunday came from. Um, It was a march to honor uh, and to protest the murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson.
0: Wow, So much happened during the civil rights movement. um, And every single thing uh, needs to be recognized as a big moment because those were kind of the catalysts to carry us into the later years when when um, some of these things actually came to fruition. We'll be right back after this. You, uh, you alluded to it a little bit earlier, but you wrote some books with Congressman Lewis. So what, what were those? What was the March trilogy?
1: John Lewis and I wrote four books together. Um, our first one was published in 2013. That was March book one. Um, and it was a, a series of graphic memoirs um, telling his life. Um, started from when he was a young boy preaching to the chickens. And the first book... Um, Outside of His Young Adulthood focuses on the Nashville sit-in movement. Um, And the second book focuses on uh, the Freedom Rides and the March on Washington. And the third book focused on um, the Mississippi Freedom Summer, the challenge at the 1964 Democratic Convention in Atlantic City, and the Selma campaign. Um, And then we changed the title uh, because the Congressman Lewis, the Civil Rights Movement ended with the signing of the Voting Rights Act to him. Um, So we changed it to RUN. And we started again with a new series. And um, it was supposed to be a series about the relationship he had with his friend Julian. Um, And it picks up two days after the signing of the Voting Rights Act. And it walks you through a year that is vastly understudied. You know, we lose sight of the fact that the Watts uprising took place days after the signing of the Voting Rights Act. We forget about the challenge to Julian Bond's seating in the Georgia General Assembly. They refused to seat him because he opposed the Vietnam War, even though there was a statue of a segregationist Georgia senator who was white sitting on the, on the state capitol grounds who also had opposed American intervention in foreign wars. And we forget about the murders of a number of civil rights activists in 1966, including Jonathan Daniels and Sammy Young who was murdered for trying to buy a pack of cigarettes and refusing to use a segregated bathroom, even though the Civil Rights Act was almost two years old. Mm. And we forget about how John Lewis picked himself back up, how he lost the chairmanship of SNCC because he refused to push out white members of SNCC and, in a sense, lost his identity lost his family but he picked himself back up and then he became a public servant and that was the idea behind calling it run because first you march and then you run
0: john lewis he always chose to do the right thing. You know, it's, it's a conversation to be had. I mean, it's not always easy to do that. And, and that's what kind of, you know, that, that bolsters up all of this talk about him. I mean, it's he, his character. It's not just his actions, but it was his character. Um, you know, a lot of people referred to him as the conscience of Congress. Why do you think that is?
1: You know, the congressman spoke up against the Defense of Marriage Act. I believe it was 1992, long before it was popular. He said, um, I fought too long and too hard against discrimination based on color to not stand up for dis- against discrimination based on sexual orientation. John Lewis was one of the earliest members to oppose the Iraq war. And John Lewis had a long history of being on the right side of an issue Before it was considered the right side.
0: Mm.
1: And for for those reasons, they kind of nicknamed him the conscience of the Congress. I love that. But a lot of that also comes from moments we didn't see. It comes from those caucus meetings and those gatherings when they'd be debating what they should do. And John Lewis was one of unafraid to say what he believed to his fellow colleagues his fellow members and so after a while many of these members started to look to him as a judge of what history will remember
0: Wow, that's that's a really <laughs> it's a really big thing to earn. I mean, that, that trust of people to say, you know what, you're always right. You're always right uh, morally, and you know, you always align with what's what values should be, and um, you know, that's that's part of what made him so great, and um, will will cause us to remember those things, and that's that's what it. I mean, that's how we should remember somebody. It's not always about what they did. it's how they were and how they affected everybody, and he did every he did all of those things. um like I said before, his actions matched his words, and we don't always see that, um especially in politics, you know so as as we uh, I, we could talk about him all day long because he he honestly he deserves it. but just to a, a final thought because you worked with him, because you studied with him and you studied him, what do you think will be John Lewis's legacy?
1: I honestly don't know. I think if anything, studying the movement has taught me that there are forces constantly at work trying to reshape and reimagine what happened in history. And that those forces are often aligned with political convenience. And I fear that someday John Lewis will become something that he wasn't. That the authentic John Lewis will get lost. Because people want to commodify memories like his. They want to corporatize them. They want to turn them into something that is useful in that moment. They make movies or TV shows that purport to tell his legacy or show him in action, but are made by people who never knew him and never talked to the people who did. And I hope, if anything, that his absolute devotion to the philosophy and discipline of nonviolence is what will be remembered. Mm. At the end of the day, he was just a human being. He was an ordinary human being who lived an extraordinary life. And I don't want him to be put on too much of a pedestal because it makes it impossible for people to understand that they could be just like him, that the dividing line between his legacy and all the rest of us is not anything other than consistent courage and persistence. And I think when we think about that today, it seems really hard to be like John Lewis, to have that courage. But he wasn't born wealthy. He didn't go to the fanciest schools. He grew up poor. He went to school and worked his way through. And he was tested over and and over again. And it was not a linear progression To this view that we have of him now, he reinvented himself over and over again, whether it was from going to be a public servant after he left SNCC or whether it was embracing comic books and social media as a congressman. He did so many things that the people at the time, even the people closest around him, told him he shouldn't do but he did it because he believed that you had to embrace ideas that were outside the box, that were non-traditional because that's what the movement was at the time. That's what nonviolence was when Dr. King championed it and Jim Lawson championed it. And you have to be willing to embrace these new ideas, to listen to young people so that you can carry on your mission so that you can succeed because history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And we have to be able to hear the notes.
0: Mm. Beautifully said. I haven't heard it that way before. Um, and, you know, it is a blessing to talk to someone who did know the authentic John Lewis, who did work with him. Um, so he's lucky to have you tell his story. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on. That was wonderful.
1: Oh, no, thank you. You got to stay in touch. We'll, uh, we'll do something else.
0: Absolutely. Well, we'll be happy to have you back on. If you miss anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways about Representative John Lewis and his involvement with the March on Washington and the Selma Montgomery March. Number one, something John Lewis talked about was getting in good trouble. Andrew pointed out that phrase came to mean something based on the eye of the beholder. But fundamentally, it meant you've got to find a way to get in the way. Which brings me to number two, John Lewis focused on direct acting. He wasn't afraid to put himself on the line. He fought for issues before it was popular, too. And that's part of the reason he was referred to as the conscience of Congress. And number three, Andrew pointed out that Congressman Lewis continuously reinvented himself. He was unafraid, and he took risks for rights for everyone who was discriminated against. Andrew ended by saying not only does history repeat itself, it rhymes. So you have to listen to its notes. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on John Lewis. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnews.podcast.com and don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been getting schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.
1: Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.